Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. We are back with a guest who has graciously decided to come on the show. First of all, I'll introduce my co-host, Corey, who's uh, back again for more of Recovery Machine action. Yep. And uh, how are you doing, Corey, down in Mission? I'm very good. Yeah. Thanksgiving weekend, so I've had some family time and uh, back to work tomorrow, but I'm, yeah, feeling good. The drought continues in the Fraser Valley, though. Yeah, that's what I hear. You guys get flooded, and now you got no water. Yeah, no water. It hasn't rained a fraction of what it normally would have uh, in the last month and a half, two months. So, Hmm. Yeah, I wonder what that means for your winter. I know, it's coming. (laughs) We shall see. So Peter is uh, joining us from over in Oshawa. Oshawa. Thank you. And uh, Corey's not going to introduce you, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) Anyway, Peter Malosh uh, has been listening to the show for a little while. And uh, he's, he's got personal experience in the, in the realm of addiction, he's got lived experience with uh, the type of thing that we talk about, and he's decided that uh, he'd like to come on, and, and we're happy to have him. So welcome, Peter, and uh, thanks for taking the time, especially during Thanksgiving. Yeah, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving, and yeah, it's good to be here. I've been checking out your podcast the past, you know, couple of months or so, and um, I just, uh, I find a lot of, um, a lot I can identify with the things that you guys talk about both your personal experiences and what you gather from that personal experience in terms of how it would apply to, you know, how we manage and think about these things. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that a lot. You actually, it sounds like you listen to a few different podcasts who are, who are kind of, I know you, you, you're well read on the topic and you're a fan of uh, Maya Salovitz and, and Dr. Carl Hart and, um, various other authors. I was going to ask you actually before, if you could suggest or maybe recommend some other podcasts that our, our listeners might enjoy that's kind of either similar or relatively authentic. I guess is that that's the, the difficult one for me. I, I see a lot of ones that are very, they're either super AANA biased or completely pro-drug. And I'm not saying either one of those things are bad. I'm just saying that there seems to be a real kind of bent towards one angle or the other. And I was wondering if there's other ones out there that are a little more exploratory. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't really get any more authentic than I think Crackdown podcast. I'm a big fan of that one. I know you had Garth Mullins mm-hmm. on the show. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a hero of a lot of people, including myself, and as is Carl Hart and people like Stanton Peel. I really like when it comes to the more neurobiological scientific aspects. I, th- I think Mark Lewis is really on the right track. Picked up both of his books this year, both um, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, that's 2011 or 2012, as well as uh, 2016's uh, The Biology of Desire. And I just think that he does a really good job of reconciling what a lot of the conflicts are between sort of brain disease model and incorporating the sort of everything else, basically. I have not read any Mark Lewis. So I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Um, there's so few, I mean, I, it's a strange thing, even when, you know, we're tracking, we're always looking at metrics for the podcast and stuff. And I think it would be good for us to be able to sort of do some kind of work with other, another 
group of podcasts, it just seems difficult to find ones that are kind of on the same page. Other than having guests like Maya, I mean, like I, I think her her general philosophy and her ideas about addiction are bang on. Mm-hmm. Same with uh, Carl Hart, but uh, we have not reached out to him yet. How did you get Maya? Just curious. Like, how did that happen? Okay. <laughs> how did that happen? Indeed. We got super lucky, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we took some time and uh, put together a persuasive an email as we could. And I think that it just got sent at the right time. It got past her agents and right to her and and. For whatever reason, she had, because she's so busy too, right? She's yeah. public mm-hmm. speaking all the time, but she just, she's like, yeah, sure. I'll come on. And uh, probably didn't hurt that her, you know, she was still promoting her book. Yeah. So that's all good stuff. But uh, believe me, we were <laughs> shocked. <laughs> I took yeah. a picture of my face when I read the, <laughs> read the email. Like, what yeah. in the hell? She said, yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, yeah that um, was, that was really nice. Uh a really cool experience to have her on. Yeah. Undoing Drugs is the most recent book I've read in entirety and uh, really impressive writing. And the most, um, the, the thing that sticks with me from her sort of a, a motto that she's kind of come out with is how does it make sense to treat a condition that's defined by its resistance to punishment with punishment, right? Like, yeah. If you understand the problem, then you must change that tactic. It's, I get why people you know, it takes a little bit of time to really understand what she means when she's talking about addiction as a learning disorder. What I like most about her model is that it uses the latest neuroscience, which backs up the fact that the neuronal pruning that occurs during that learning behavior is not brain cells dying because of the drug. It's the behavior being streamlined because that's a behavior you're doing. Just like if you learn piano or spoke another language, it's the same thing that occurs. It does the same thing in reverse when you Mm -hmm. stop the process. Yeah. It's very much like what Mark Lewis says, which is it's brains doing what they're designed to do only a little bit too well. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's in realigning with that. I think that you learn and most people do learn, in fact, without any treatment. Uh, they put themselves through their own treatment, you know, as I have. I've never tended until this year, never had any counseling or any formal training or dealing with any of these things. I've just always kind of dealt with them in my own, you know, mental mental techniques, I call them. So Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background as far as uh, when you started using drugs or what your experiences were with drugs and then... How did that turn into what you would consider a problem? And then uh, we'll go from there. So I, in the 1990s, it's easy to remember the grades I was in because each year ending was the grade I was in. So 93, I was in grade three, 95, I was in grade five. So in the middle of grade six, our family moved to an area of North Toronto called Thornhill. One of my parents was, was working there. And so we moved there to be closer to where they were working. So that was a very upsetting thing in my, in my life. I was very sort of displaced by that experience. And then within a few months after that, my parents divorced. So that was, you know, kind of a big break or like frack. Everything kind of changed at that point. So to fast forward a little bit, the first time that I had, had uh, taken any drugs was early on in, in high school, in grade nine. Somebody who was close to me and that I, I was hanging around a lot sort of surprisingly um, introduced me to cannabis. Again, going back to my upbringing, I, I, you know, I wasn't 
not only was I not interested in drugs, but I was, you know, as per my upbringing, I mean, I was very really against the idea. And that was the sort of environment of my upbringing is that, you know, just drugs are bad, just say no, essentially. And did your parents talk to you about drugs or was it just an expected thing that uh, you, you just stayed away from them? Not in any great detail or, or depth. That, that was just a very difficult thing, though. Just, I mean, it's laughable today, you know, especially with cannabis being legalized now, like to think that I would have been so disturbed by that having happened. But I just remember oh, the name. Yeah. Not laughable at all. I, I mean, I, th- I think when uh, we, we first talked, we had a very similar experience where the same attitude towards drugs. I mean, I'm not sure how you felt going into high school, Corey, but I was, I was at, like, I was adamantly opposed to drinking and drug use. That was my going idea. into high school. Same. Yeah. Same. Up until yeah. like, I just saw, oh, that's a stupid thing to do, blah, blah, blah. And I looked down on anybody who did it. Uh, but I hung out with older guys and then inevitably it was grade nine there on grade 12 and same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I had, I had to wrestle with that as well. So not laughable, Peter, yeah. understandable, <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. Thanks. Yeah. But you know, the the next day after that first sort of encounter, you know, I just, I just felt like, what have I done? I I felt like I'd done such a terrible thing. And more than anything, I definitely couldn't talk to anybody or tell anybody about what had happened. And so that was, that was kind of the first thing. And then rolling on for, you know, a year or two after that, that was in October grade nine. And by the end of, by the December of that year, um, my grandfather on my dad's side, um, he, he passed away. And he was, he was, you know, very sick with cancer. He had been diagnosed just, just earlier in that year around August, September. And so he as well was, you know, very sort of anti-drug. He called everything, he was kind of like the DEA. He just called everything dope. No matter what it was, <laughs> stay away from the dope. Yeah, yeah right. That's right. <laughs> so at one point he was, you know, he had some home care at one point and, you know, we were uh, in the basement. Or sneaking out the back, smoking up or whatever. And I just remember feeling like so wrong about, you know, well, he's sick upstairs and I'm sneaking out the back and doing that. And so just, just a lot of things like that would happen where, you know, just guilty, shameful sort of feelings building. And it's interesting how I felt those feelings too, a, a great inner conflict. I could remember being high around my grandparents or uh, high around my parents and, and, the stigma that is attached with that, especially as a kid growing up in the in the era of dare and stuff like that, they really pound it into your head that you're a bad person if you do that. And I often wonder how much of an impact that had on my behavior, feelings towards myself, because really, yes, yeah, so it is best if kids abstain from uh, drugs, especially cannabis, while your brain is forming. We know that uh, up to age 25, there's still changes happening with your myelin that could exacerbate or or bring about mental health issues earlier. That seems to be the evidence. Of course, that's not for everybody. I just wonder what it would be like if it was more, I don't know, evenly balanced, like alcohol, I suppose. When we drank, when we were teenagers, it wasn't like people looked down on you. They just, they're kind of like, ah, those kids, you know? the same thing when you get into problems with alcohol the world has a different sort of you know concept for them it's like well if you cleaned your act up if you had a problem with alcohol and you cleaned your act up it's like a congratulatory thing and it's 
you know, it's, it's all about the person, but if a person has a problem with drugs, then it's often you're demonizing drugs or you're demonizing something else. What you're talking about though, it was a difficult thing for me as well, like being around family and I would, you know, hear them talk disparagingly about drugs or other people in the family who are known to have problems. One time and, uh, somebody was talking about, there were some Percocets, I think, left in the cupboard or something from after my grandfather had passed away. And this person said something like, drug addicts love those things. And it's like, I had gotten into opioids by that point. I, I love those things. Am I, am I an addict or is that, right. is that all, all I am? Or, you know, yeah. but you, and you but, can't, but you hear things like that, but you can't really respond to it. Well, that's what we spend a fair amount of time challenging that. I, it's definitely something that I feel is important is to get rid of those, those labels. Like drug addict is a silly thing. The idea of uh, even alcoholic, I don't think is a good, we should, we need to remove that from the lexicon. Mm -hmm. It should be a person who's got a problem with drinking. We want the, the focus to be on the person. It's not that the person is a bad person and it's not the substance is a inherently bad thing. It's just that for whatever reason, those circumstances have come into line where this person is now having a problem with this. The same as somebody who's uh, eating too much food or gambling too much or is promiscuous to the point of it having a negative effect on their life. You know, these are all behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel that that's important. I don't know, Corey. I, I do too. I, and I think, I think shame is shame. And um, to like to a young man, shame is shame. And if the shame, we know shame is correlated with secrecy, secrecy. And even if it's drug use that we're feeling ashamed of, I think it perpetuates that loop, perpetuates that loop and makes sort of a, a, a connection in the brain that opiates are still a reliever of that feeling. They're still a comforting feeling. They're a comforting feeling maybe anyway, but if it's, if there's a link with feeling ashamed of what you're doing, yes. uh, it, it, it's not certainly not going to get you out of it. And I mean, imagine if like you could have, or I chosen to have a frank conversation or like as a young teenager too, it was something that I was sort of, I had those, those same moments of being around family or uh, having stolen it and, and feeling ashamed of that. And the secrecy of that didn't matter. In fact, it, no. it, it exacerbated it. It does make it worse. And you're right. Yeah. It's, it actually generates a feeling and that yeah. feeling just from that part of it makes you want to take more. I think it does. Yeah. Yes. So Peter, can you tell us sort of how you, how that I say leap for lack of a better term, but the step from cannabis to opioids mm -hmm. happened? It wasn't really a leap. Um, well, it wasn't a sense, but after about a year after that happened, um, person that I was close to, he had become become involved with with opioids, regularly taking them, uh, specifically codeine. He introduced me to uh, that. To, uh, what was done was, at least in Ontario, you can buy low-level codeine pills over the counter. Mm -hmm. This is another thing too, is like people think, especially with something that we think of as addictive drugs, it's like your first exposure to that and you're hooked. Well, I, I think it's a very, there's a very large portion of percentage of people that when it comes with the first time or times is like not fun. So you would, uh, you would agree with that, Corey, I think with your experience. Oh, I think I, I think I liked it. I, um, Oh yeah. You liked it, but it made you feel like irritable or itchy yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate a lot actually. Um, yeah. once I had some later experience with some other things, it's, it does have a lot more side effects, a lot of like hot 
or irritable, itchy, sort of negative mm-hmm. sort of side effects. But yeah, histamine response. Yeah. 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 We, I know a lot of people are against pineapple on pizza, but I remember we ordered a pizza with pineapple on on it that night, and I ended up vomiting after a couple slices. And so for many years, I couldn't eat pineapple. Now I love it, but huh. I couldn't eat <laughs> couldn't eat pineapple on pizza. So it was not good. It was a very sickening experience. And yet after that, when I would be so over at uh, aunts and uncles or grandparents, if they had like those same kind of pills in the medicine cabinet, I would maybe it was some sort of rebellion rebelliousness in me or something, but I would, you know, grab a few. Yeah. That what you're talking about right there might help me understand a little bit about what Corey talks about sometimes. You remember Corey when you were you were talking about there was some sort of a addictive quality to the actual procuring of the drugs from your workplace. Yeah. And and I I don't connect with that. I don't I don't I don't understand it personally, but I think maybe it makes sense now because what a Peter's describing there there would be some sort of a, you know, I'm picturing you're over family, maybe you're bored, maybe, you know, you're just kind of, what am I doing here? You're not relating with the conversation. You're like, eh, oh, what do we got here? Let's, uh, this is exciting. Let's do something that's at least mildly interesting. Is that, am I on the right track there? For myself? For both of you. There's definitely, you know, a, a sort of thrill. And that's part of the sort of setup for the, for the score. Everything I find with my addiction experience goes back to policy when it comes to the things you need to go through to obtain things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because there's the hunt and the feast, right? I think that we do get a reward in our brain from that. It just, yeah, yeah. It, to me, it makes it makes sense that we do, and that I don't think uh, that's not to say that you that it can't also still be linked with some shame that you're or or the knowledge that what you're doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Peter, you knew that stealing something from someone else's medic- medicine cabinet is is inherently wrong. And, and I knew the same, certainly about work and at the times that I did the same thing as what you're saying. But I do think we our brain gets a little, a little kick from it, certainly a sense of control, mm-hmm. certainly a sense of like a bit of empowerment too. And then you, then there's an actual chemically rewarding substance on the other end of that. So it's, again, very easy to kind of see that there's a link that establishes there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. I, yeah, I understand that a little better now that, uh, that's been a, a, a bit of a mystery to me, but that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So over the next period of time, like I would grab some pills like that and take them and there was something there, something was happening, but I wasn't really connecting with it. And then again, there was another experience when I had another, when I had taken another one of those, you know, extracted higher dose codeine preparations and I didn't get sick again that time and i thought of painkillers at the time as like a painkiller is going to make you be strong and things aren't going to impact you sometimes it causes anxiety in people so there was a definite feeling of like this sort of surrendering almost like i almost used to think of it almost kind of like an abduction experience i felt like something was like beaming me up that's very interesting i hear often from patients who refuse to take any more uh pain medications one of the biggest complaints is nausea and the other one is a feeling they don't like the feeling it feels like it feels weird it feels like like you described like my body's being taken over by something and it's often uh, older folks who have never had experiences with uh, or an opiate naive i think part of the purpose it served for me was um i very much felt like i had sort of this secret tool with drugs that i could sort of 
as Mark Lewis puts it, you know, I can make myself feel however I want. I don't need yeah. the messy inconvenience of interpersonal relationships and that sort of thing. I can, you know, I can control how I'm going to feel. If you want to dial down the difficulty level on whatever this is, you know, it's, that's, that's kind of what it does for me. Um, mm -hmm up until a point and then you get used to existing at that lowered difficulty level and you get kicked out the other end and if you decide to make a change everything gets much much harder one of the things in your journey towards oxycodone video of your telling your story nathan is you uh, you said something that was really i thought was really cool was when it started becoming problematic for you you said when simply getting through the day starts to rise very high on your priority list that could be kind of one sort of marker or measure of like when you know things are going from something helping you or self-medicating to it overtaking you and, and becoming problematic that's it's a it's a hard thing to is you're basically self-diagnosing you want to reach out you want to tell people what's going on even whether you're having a good time or a bad time it's it's shunned you want to connect with people and yet because mm -hmm. of the way policy stigma whatever you want to call it is it drives you further into the darkness and that's where you don't need to be mm -hmm. my first year in university after high school was it was a bit of a period of, of awakening i did have a feeling at that point of realizing how far astray i had gone at that point and i started to have a real kind of emotional um, response to things especially when this when the days got shorter um i'd find myself crying or weeping mm -hmm. and like not knowing why or like what was can i um, ask you about that that feeling what you're talking about there it's a type of uh it's like a, a mix between fomo and uh loneliness even if i'm not lonely it's a an inability to a perceived inability to connect. And then when the darkness, the actual darkness comes at night and I'm by myself, it kind of seals that imaginary perception of loneliness. And I become like, uh, yeah, like a, it, I can be emotional like that, where it, I just feel like really uh, like it's a loneliness, mm -hmm. a deep loneliness. Is that, does that ring a bell or am I, am yeah, I off I mean, in the weeds? No, I mean, one of the big harms that I had sort of imposed on myself through high school is, you know, I missed out on a lot of developmental and um, social uh, opportunities for social development and that sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I just struggled a lot with loneliness myself as, as well. So kind of goes, you know, with what Johan Hari says is like the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And, you know, yeah. It's almost like we share our nervous systems with when we're around others. Share the nervous system. I like that. That's interesting. Marshall McLuhan, I guess, said that's what the internet. He pre he predicted the internet, right? Like, so. yeah. huh? <laughs> yeah. No, that's uh, that's actually a really good way of looking at it. <laughs> so I had a very difficult first year in university, sort of putting the past four or five years in perspective, and ended up in a place where having a lot of emotional sort of problems, a lot of feelings of anxiety and depression that had probably been smothered over. Um, in that time, I it's kind of what I call my reactionary period. I, I was kind of reacting against myself. And so I became actually completely abstinent. 
I had a very much a feeling of, you know, that I was turning against myself. And so, you know, I would put myself through physically, deliberately, physically difficult things. There was very much a sense of that I was making up for developmental experiences that I was avoiding in high school. Like I said, I wasn't participating in a lot of social or academic or athletic things. And so, so basically it was a big period of compensation. You know, several years I was very in this sort of mindset of reacting against myself. Mortification. So, <laughs> you're like you're like a priest uh, chastising yourself. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long of a period of abstinence? And when you're during this period of abstinence, it sounds to me like you were like you're saying you were. It was kind of like you against yourself. Did you set it up in your mind so that you were kind of like a drill sergeant or? Did you set it up as I'm doing this because I care about myself? I've tried both ways and the drill sergeant way is a war of attrition that never, that never has worked for me. I have to be on my own team and I have to be kind to myself or I drill myself into the ground. Basically it was in the physical department. It was kind of like the, the idea of like the old Spartans making life deliberately hard there was also a, a, an aspect of, of caring for myself more in a way that I'd felt I'd been neglecting for a long time. My mantra in that time was, there's no possible way that doing more of what I've been doing can make me feel better. That's a rational approach to a very complicated problem. And when you're dealing with it, what it sounds to me like you were dealing with it mostly on your own, but you still came to that rational conclusion that what I'm doing is not getting me to where I want to go. Therefore, I need to try something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, started doing a lot of reflecting in this, this time and thinking back to how things started. People talk about, you know, chasing that first high, or a lot of people say that when they take, when they first time they took an opioid or was the first time they felt normal. I don't really identify with either of those, particularly the former. Many times that I've taken a drug after the, the first time I've taken one was much better than the, the first time. What, what I think maybe there is something to is maybe the first time that you take, some, like especially that first Percodan for me, it, it was certainly it was highly memorable. But in terms of the degree of euphoria, I mean, I've had many experiences since that first high that were far more euphoric. So yeah, no, same. I think it, it depended on other factors too other factors in how I was feeling and when I had eaten and what I was doing and how I felt in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I, I, I don't remember the first time I, I used hydromorphone and we've talked about that. I don't recall the first incident. Mm. Um, I just don't, but I remember that there were times that where it would, it could be different d d based on, I think even time of the day, how tired I was when I took it. Mm -hmm. Lots of factors, lots of factors. Yeah. The term chasing the dragon, I think, originated from smoking raw opium, right? Mm -hmm. You'd be smoking and a tail of smoke would come out. One of the sort of first realizations that I, I came to was that the insatiability aspect of, you know, that it, this would never, it would never be enough. Like I'll never, I can't, I can't have enough. And, and the other side of that, which that sounds obvious and what sounds even more stupidly obvious is that no matter how much you take, you, the end result is that you run out. So there's sort of a realization that I think happens as part of sort of any recalibrating of your values. 
is realizing that you've kind of made a mistake in over-investing in, in this one experience. No matter how much you do this, you'll never really be able to have enough. You can only ever run out of the thing that makes you happy. To me, that's pretty impressive because one of the, the things that we know happens to the brain is that your the very value system that you're talking about and your priorities become now centered. That's There's an actual physiological change that takes place in the amygdala that makes now much, much, much more important than anything else. So what you're saying is that you came to the realization that you somehow overrode that system and, and looked at it from outside yourself maybe and, and said, you know what, this is, I can't always be in the now. There's always going to be the next thing coming down the line. And I, this is not sustainable, which is an incredibly rational thought again, for somebody who's tackling this on their own. And many people don't come to that conclusion, I think for a long time. Mm-hmm. Would you agree, this, Corey? Th- yeah, totally. This comes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about the reinforcement of the behavior of seeking and obtaining, at least for me, that it was, it did become an insatiable feeling. And I've, I mentioned this, I think maybe in the first or second episode we ever did about how in the last couple of weeks I, before I went off work, I was really, really tired. There were lots of factors in my life that were, that were starting to come to a head and, and I was working really, really hard and I was very fatigued. And so I would be, and I had a enormous medicine cabinet, so to speak, to, to draw from. And so it was like, I would obtain the hydromorphone. I would take it. I would certainly be intoxicated at work. And then like within minutes be thinking, I need to go do that again. And it was like, rationally, I guess I knew that I was intoxicated or that I was feeling the, the effect to the fullest, but it was like, there was that compulsion for lack of a better word, was still in overdrive and still like driving me towards the drug. When I look at that now, I'm thinking like, how could I have possibly thought that I needed to go and get it again within 10 minutes, 20 minutes? Like that's absurd. Well, that's the Pavlovian response there, right? It is. And and there's, so there's a real link that happens there. And I think that it's so much more about, for me, it was about the whole process, the whole process and feeling in control and being in the same environment. I think of it as the opposite of a link. I think of it as a sort of disassociation in the brain. You know, there's a lack of logic to it. And it's perplexing when when you're in that of like, I know this is not going to make me feel any better. It's going to, in fact, make me feel shitty. That's kind of part, a big part of the problem. But. Yeah, it is. For sure it is. That's a that's well said. I uh, And I think too, it, it's also, at least when I think of myself, I, I think back to what was driving my insight. Like insight is such an interesting term. And insight versus hindsight. And in, in that moment, I certainly felt like I, I had insight, like it was telling myself that I had insight to a, to a fault because mm-hmm. I certainly didn't, I didn't have insight to how I must've been appearing to, to the people around me who were probably sensing like, Hey, what's up with this guy? But yeah, there's a, there is a dissociation there or like an inability to see that. And then an inability to sort of see the, that, I don't know, like the sort of the bird's eye view that we have otherwise. Mm-hmm. How long was that period of abstinence and at what period of time in your life? And then what made you come around again on, on your thoughts about drugs? Probably something like year, year and a half. My drug use was always opportunistic. One thing yeah. there that, that's interesting is uh, you being in a job that does not, like your job 
does not have access to drugs 24-7. But Corey's former position, my position when I'm working in a pharmacy, I have my, that drug of choice is going through my hands on a regular basis. Now, have you considered what your, you know, your management of this, would you be able to use some sort of management technique under these conditions? Or do you think that my personal view is I shouldn't be in a pharmacy? It's mm-hmm. stupid. <laughs> like what Corey's, what Corey decided to do, very wise. Mm-hmm. Like why take the chance? Right. Mm-hmm. What if you had a problem with a certain thing that, especially where it's something that can kill you, why on earth would you do that to yourself? Uh, why would you use that much uh, energy? You know, just why would you put yourself there if that if that's the situation? It seems to be that uh, access makes it. Well, it's not just access though; it's also the environment. So it's a, it's more complex than that. But the question stands. I mean, have you? Have you considered what it would be like if you were in a vocation where you had access like that? Not really, but have you ever seen a smoker or a drinker with tobacco or alcohol-seeking behavior? Honestly, my feeling is that if all drugs were legalized today, I probably wouldn't care to really use drugs again. It would be good enough just knowing that I could have them whenever I wanted. That's honestly how I feel. That absolutely might be true. I am 100% in agreement that uh, drugs should be legalized and regulated, all drugs. It's from a societal point of view, uh, you're going to get way more positives than negatives. But due to the lack of evidence and you know, just the big unknowns, I, I wonder, as I, you know, I, probably many people do, what would happen? You know, have you thought about what would happen in the general population? We've, we talked about it before. We've, we've seen what happened with cannabis. We, you know, cannabis is a different animal, but it was, you know, at one time considered a very dangerous drug, blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, here it is, it's legal and very little has changed. In fact, things have gotten a little bit better health-wise due to education. And um, there's obviously less people smoking carcinogens. Things have improved. So what's your thoughts on that level of accessibility and uh, its impact on society? Right. Well, I think drug use would actually increase, but it's important to make a distinction between drug use in general versus harmful drug use. Critical sort of insight, I think, is that most of the harms that we view as intrinsic harms of drugs actually come from the way that we attempt to manage them with our policies. Indirectly, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. That's something that people often make a, a, an error with is... The fact that the drugs themselves, if provided in a, a regulated pure form, are not they're not inherently that bad. They're not going to kill you instantly. It's it's more the fact that you lost your job and now you live on the street and you're in jail and blah, blah, blah. All the indirect things are what what gets you in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right there. Totally agree so far. So yeah, I think think the criminalization itself blurs the intrinsic harms of drugs, the way that we've criminalized people who use drugs, the way that we've criminalized the substances themselves. I mean, the iron law, of course, is a perfect example of the way that that exacerbates overdose risk. Yeah. I'll just explain that for the listeners real quick. Iron law of prohibition basically means that the tighter restrictions you have on a area such as our country uh, in regards to substances means that 
illicit drugs to get in need to be more potent because of basic logistics when it comes to uh, smuggling and shipping. You need to be able to get more bang for your buck across and into a drug user's hands if it's an illicit substance, especially when it's a one that's going to be uh, either worth a lot of money or uh, a lot of jail time. So as the money value and the jail time, which usually increase uh, hand in hand, go up, the uh, iron law predicts that the potency of your street drugs will increase. Mm -hmm. Just for a quick definition, if people don't know what that means. So I just think it's so interesting that, you know, today we have our opioid epidemic. We have our 6,500 Canadians a year dying of overdose, over 100,000 Americans last year. After all our cracking down and prohibition and, and all of this approach, that's where it gets us. First of all, I don't understand why methadone and buprenorphine specifically has to do more or less with how they're the least fun of all of them. <laughs> so I think it's more for the comfort of the people who are doing the prescribing that it's, it's what they are okay with. There's no real good pharmacologic reason why you couldn't use morphine or heroin or anything well, else. Yeah, totally agree with you. And uh, studies show that people are actually, as far from a harm reduction point of view, heroin, like prescription heroin is generally the better way to go, at least up until this point. With uh, the potency of our current drug crisis, I don't know if, if heroin would cut it, but they do have studies in uh, Europe. And uh, I think the first one was done in the UK where they used uh, prescription heroin and it was very successful. And yeah, you're right. It, methadone is, it's such a, a patronizing experience. Mm -hmm. Or somebody who's like, if you've got a problem with that, you want to be able to go in and say, look, I'm a uh, problem with addiction opiates. Can you help me? Oh, yeah, but you're going to have to work your way up. I'm going to have to learn to trust you because you're a shitty person immediately now. <laughs> and I, I can't write you more than one little dose per day because you're going to run out of the pharmacy and spit it into somebody else's mouth for some reason. And, you know, it's like from a harm reduction point of view, this makes no sense. One of the big problems I have with the whole buprenorphine and methadone programs is like, it's an actual requirement of these programs that you make yourself physically dependent. You can't take it on Monday and then have it again on Saturday if you want, but it's like, well, what if I don't want to? What if that's not how I use opioids? The starting assumption of, of the whole program is that there's no user autonomy of possible. And I understand that for many people that that describes their the, the condition, but I think there's many people who that doesn't really work for them. So why are we not trusted with this? And it goes back to the whole sort of stereotyped ideas of how there's, a, there's this idea of called pharmacologic determinism, that a given drug has to have opioids have to addict and enslave you. Uh, cocaine has to turn you into a jerk who, you know, lies to people, but these things are actually much more culturally constructed. That would be a uh, understatement. Yeah. We have to take a more mature scientific approach to the problem. Get the mm -hmm. emotions to the side for a second, look at what the facts are, and then come at the problem with a realistic view of what we can do. We know people used recreationally and are just fine. So why, like you're saying, are they required to be exposed to a near-death experience just because they want to uh, have some fun with their friends. This is a strange thing to me. I mean, we discussed it last episode that just went up about safe supply. Safer supply. 
That's right. Yeah. <laughs> they added an R on the end. <laughs> they added an R. We were sharing some notes before and talking about uh, those terms that people use of addiction and ends up being a little bit of a trigger point for me. So I just wanted to get into that a little bit. So there's the basic idea of dependence, right? Kind of depends on how you define it. Is, is dependence where if you stop using a drug, you'll die? Or is dependence where you'll merely experience some discomfort? Because if you go with the more restrictive definition of ceasing taking a drug will cause death, then only a few drugs that people seek, including alcohol, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, and opioids would not be a drug of dependence if that's how you define it. You know what I mean? So people throw throw these terms around. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) yeah, you've got a a nuanced mind, Peter, and that (laughs) that could be a double-edged sword when it comes to uh, anything drug-related. But it's certainly is a problem when you're discussing drug policy because there's so much that doesn't make sense. The semantics is always more political than it is rational. You know, even to move forward or to try to move forward on policy, you have to somewhat get involved in those semantics. And I think everybody can all get on the same page. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't be arguing about what what these kind of terms mean on a, on a medical level. We've done entire episodes on defining addiction, mm-hmm. you know, and I, we could do another one. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it, lots of these things are not, uh, they've been discussed a million times, mm-hmm. but they're all shades of gray. Mm-hmm. I do think it's just important to question. Another one too is tolerance. If you Google, you know, I had videos on drug tolerance, inevitably it will be defined as marked by an escalating uh, dose pattern. Even Mm -hmm. I was with my doctor recently and I made the mistake of saying that I had some concerns about antidepressants causing physical dependence. And he kind of took me to task and said, well, these, these don't, that's not really accurate for describing these drugs. And because of the DSM five definition. Yeah. Yeah. Like with tolerance, tolerance, that's not what tolerance is. I would think of tolerance as basically the body's increased capacity to safely metabolize a drug due to recent exposure. Whether the dose escalates or not depends on why is the person taking the drug, what depends on a variety of things of whether that's going to happen. I am going to call for a short break. Yeah. Tell us, uh, so what happened after the period of abstinence and where did you land? Where are you now with your stance on drug use? I got to a place after a good period of abstinence where uh, I can definitely relate to something Corey said in one of those early videos about you mentioned the idea of if you were to with how basically good a place you got feeling with where you're, you were at, the, the thought of if you were to take something was actually repulsive. I could sort of relate to that, but eventually there were opportunities where I would run into places where I could take something or you, you get to kind of a place where it's been this many months or whatever. I'm feeling pretty steady day to day. It's like, maybe I can see how I do again. And so 
tentatively, gradually, cautiously, I, I would, you know, if I found some Tylenol 3s or Percocets, I, I would grab a few. And I don't know, I've, I've come to see the concept of relapse not very helpful for me. So you came to a point where this inner rhetoric or the uh, guilt that you felt after using was doing more harm you felt than anything. Therefore, you changed the way you dealt with these times that you did use drugs. Is that? Mm -hmm. I found over time that actually trying to maintain abstinence is more harmful and difficult for me than if I give myself a, a vow. I don't know, maybe it goes back to my earlier experiences with not really having problems with control of the drug use itself. It's more other things that were going on in my life that were probably driving those feelings. I find that this concept of, of relapse to be kind of problematic, and it's also a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. I guess what disturbs me more than anything is just the prevalence of this abstinence concept that I'm very happy that it works for the you know, for, for the people that it works for, but I have a problem with that being imposed even down to the letter of the law. Like Corey, with the things you had to go through, I watched all those videos and it just seemed like an exercise in drug tropes and stereotypes about the things that they were requiring of you and the way that they were questioning your memory of, did you remember giving this person this injection eight months ago or? Yeah, it's uh it's a disease, that's what the, the claim is, and yet the response is punitive. So for some reason, yeah, we are stuck in this, I don't know, it's like a back and forth where they, they won't let it go that it's a disease. Therefore, there's a bunch of things that go on with that. Because it's a disease, it affects the way our laws are set up with autonomy. It won't fit your current mode of, uh, or whatever your relationship is to drugs right now, will not work with that model. And uh, I think you said it very well when you said that it's great that those things are out there and that they help the people that they help. But I don't want to see it forced on people. I certainly don't want it to be involved in our legal system. I mean, it's the same as, uh, uh, it's the same way I feel about religion. People should be allowed to gain whatever benefit they can from whatever religious belief they ascribe to. Yeah, for sure. And Peter, I really, I relate to what you said there about the messages that we give ourselves around, if we want to call it a relapse or a slip or just a return to drug use, those messages of like putting ourselves down and and shame and beating ourselves up, regardless of what you want to call it, a slip or a relapse that mental exercise in in self-flagellation that happens after is only going to be more harmful to like the greater picture of our mental health whether it leads to a follow-up day of substance use i certainly think that 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 kind of really really sort of self-punishing behavior or self-punishing thoughts is only going to perpetuate something and it, it would be a it's a fascinating kind of thing to hypothesize about that like if you do slip or do go back to a, a weekend of, of drug use after a period of abstinence, are you giving yourself compassion and kindness and self-supportive messages or are you beating yourself up? What are the next couple of weeks going to actually look like? Mm -hmm. I joked with my counselor recently that um, the way that I, I stopped relapsing was um, I decided to stop calling occasions where I use drugs relapses. He kind of laughed at that, but I mean... <laughs> 
that's essentially like wh what I've come to is just that, well, if it doesn't cause problems, you know, if it doesn't cause severe dysfunction or, or distress, it perplexes me that I have truly have had previous problems with controlling use. I have had periods where I've been physically dependent and yet I come out of that instant addiction having had the experiences I've had. I'm not sure how you feel about that idea of resilience due to ex addictive experiences. Well, overall, I can say that my resilience as a human being has, uh, is better for the, for the experiences I've went through during that period of my life when it was really bad. As far as resilience or tolerance towards addiction, I think it, what it's done is it's given me a, a little more, well, a lot more of a clear indication as to what I can and cannot fuck with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Oxycodone is not a drug. It is something that I can't play with in any way, shape, or form for mm -hmm. the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. and that's it. Thinking any other way is a possible lead towards a situation that I don't know if I have the strength to come back from. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's great to, to know yourself that well. well that's, the, that's how it is for me. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is for me with that particular molecule. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Corey? It's an interesting question. It's a great question. I think that the resilience towards addiction or against addiction that I have gained has come from how bloody hard I've worked to learn about myself and my willingness to dig into the weeds of my psyche mm -hmm. and uh, into pain and into all the things that were making me tick. Mm -hmm. Um now, you know, that it's, it's hard. I'm so out of that environment now and out of the access that I had. And it's just, it's n not a part of my life. Now I could go tomorrow or today and go to the liquor store. And I, there are safe supplies out there that I have access to that don't interest me. And I, and I don't feel compelled towards it all. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the fact that I'm not compelled is because of the work that I've done to try to learn about how and why I got to the place that I did. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think that that for me, at least that, that, that is the, you know, going back to the very beginning of, of going off work and, and being kind of found out, it was like my, my desire to lean really hard into figuring myself out. I think that, that's why I healed was because I, I made that my kind of job and mm -hmm. I was off work and I wasn't doing anything else. Uh, that was wh where my time went. And that was that I include both conventional and unconventional forms of therapy and recovery type stuff in that. So, yeah. Yeah. Never seen a guy work harder than you. And I've <laughs> never seen somebody come out of a hole that deep the way you came out of it. I've seen people come out and go on with their life, but I've never seen somebody who was so determined to get to the source of the problem, figure out what was going on and rectify it. I mean, if you want to use the, the old school term that we uh, kind of make fun of with the recovery machine, you are a recovery machine. <laughs> you are the definition of a recovery machine. I mean, uh, yeah, it was, it's remarkable uh, the amount of work that you did to, uh, to come back from that. 
I always kind of worry that with my sort of outlook that it just kind of looks like my own justification for enabling of my own addiction to continue. When I come out with an idea like the idea of non-abstinent recovery that I'm, you know, for people who have worked very hard with their abstinence program and, and are very happy with that, that it's like I'm just kind of coming in and saying that that's not worth as much or something. But I, I don't mean to really come off to, to people like that. I'm just saying that, that I don't understand why I'm able to now, especially having previous experience with addiction, why I, like, I don't have a problem. I would surmise that it has something to do with your quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, if your life is on track and you're generally content with the way things are going, you, I think you're much less likely to fall into a, a path of escapism, you know? Mm -hmm. And if, uh, I mean, personally, when I look at the times where I, I had most of my trouble with, with drugs and uh, escaping my reality through drugs, it was because my life sucked <laughs> and I wasn't doing anything about it. I was mm -hmm. just letting it happen and hiding from it. Mm -hmm. That's not the, you know, that's not the drug's fault. Mm -hmm. That's my fault. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. And that's not to say that there's... I mean, yeah, they're alluring, okay? The drugs can, if you're having an acute problem of, of uh, whatever nature, they can help for a, for a quick minute, right? Plenty of people use drugs recreationally. That appears to be what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll monitor you carefully. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think of myself as uh, having a chronic brain disease because I enjoy opioids and... Uh, that's just kind of where I've arrived at. Um, yeah. So. yeah. And I, I understand that. Uh, I understand people arriving at that conclusion quite easily. I mean, it's, uh, we've talked about it lots. I'm, I'm happy for you, Peter, that you, I mean, you seem like a, a pretty intelligent guy as far as uh, your, your insight is quite remarkable actually to be able to, um, <laughs> to get to where you you've gotten, you know, a lot of people, can't can't make it through those specific areas that you made it through on your own that's something to be proud of it's been a pleasure talking to you Pierre, and uh very grateful for you to come on you've opened some uh interesting doors for us to explore mm -hmm. we might have to have you on again i would love talk. that i learned a few things and <laughs> definitely yeah. yeah thanks for being so open with us peter and <clears throat> you gave us lots to lots to think about and i'm happy to have different ideas and different approaches and just to show that it, people can go about it in their own ways and it's about if it is it working for for each of us individually you know